you'll open your Bibles with me to Isaiah 48, thank you. Choir, thank you for all your hard work and just leading us in worship. Isaiah chapter 48. You there? Good. I'm there too. Isaiah 40 to 48, let me give you some background on what's going on um, to, just to help where we're going make sense. And, uh, and today, Isaiah 48 is Theology 101. And to, to understand God, you have to dig into what he says in Isaiah 48. And so I'm, I'm excited to be here. Isaiah 40 to 48 is a section where the prophet Isaiah is speaking to Judah, right, Israel, Judah, who have been taken captive by Babylon. So that they've been, their city's been destroyed, and they've been taken to Babylon. And his message, beginning in Isaiah 40, is, as you are slaves there, is comfort. He tells Isaiah, comfort, comfort my people. And the comfort is that he will bring them home, and he will restore them. And But the problem is, the method that he chooses to deliver them is through a Persian pagan king by the name of Cyrus. And he will fill him full of the Holy Spirit. And Cyrus will let the Babylonians, will conquer the Babylonians and let God's people go. And then Cyrus himself will rebuild Jerusalem. Of course, they didn't, they weren't so keen on that. They, They wanted someone else. Chapter 48 then concludes these thoughts. is the tail end about why God is doing what he does. And God says, I'm telling you this now so that when it happens, you can't attribute it to anybody else. I'm letting you know 150 years before this happens, this is what I am going to do. Because I will not give my glory to another. Now, I want you to just pause and think about this. Judah was completely intertwined with the nations and their gods. That they had forsaken and broken the covenant in the worst kind of way, even sacrificing their own children to the gods of the nations. But this is the outward appearance they kept. Verse 1, They still swear by the name of the Lord to confess the God of Israel, but not with truth or rightly. Verse 4 and 8, they're stubborn, they're rebellious, they're treacherous. Yet God displays grace, love, and mercy to those people who have failed and struggled from the beginning in their ways. Why? Why does He do it? And He tells us. He does it for His own namesake. Again and again. That's the conclusion. Why am I doing this? I do it for my own name's sake. Now, my friends, when you read that, is that how you see God? Well, let's, let's dig in. Isaiah 48, I'm going to start at verse 9, maybe verse 8, and I'll read down. So, please read with me. You have never heard... You've never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened. 
For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. Verse 9, this is where we're going to pick up. For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Now, look at verse 17. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their names would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Let's pray for our time. God, you are so big, and you are so good, Lord, and therefore it is right for you to do everything for your own glory. Father, I praise you that you have one motive, and it is the right motive, that you do everything for your own glory and greatness. Father, sometimes we we have a hard time seeing how that is actually good for us. And so I pray today, Lord, that your Spirit would work in the minds and the consciences and the hearts of the believers here today, Father, that they would leave with a greater desire to praise, adore You, a greater trust, Father, and a direction of their life built upon what is true from Scripture. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. This text puts together two great truths for us. That our God has one end. One end. His own glory. And His name and everything that He does. And the second truth is He is utterly committed to you, to His people, and to your good. Now, at first glance, these two, they seem to be opposed to each other, do they? You say, how can God say my one great goal is in everything I do is my own glory and name? Yet the Bible gives us the greatest assurance that he loves us deeply and will not forsake us nor leave us. He's about us as well. Well, the greatest ground of hope that we have is God's commitment to His own glory. The greatest ground of hope that you have is God's commitment to His own glory. I I want to explain that. Charles Spurgeon tells a story that his brother sent him a walking stick, a walking cane. And it was a beautiful cane. It was very expensive. It was made of ebony, and it had chunks of California quartz made into it. And on the top, the handle was made of gold. And one night, a man broke into his house and stole his expensive gold cane. And this man took it and broke it into pieces. 
And he took the gold off the top and he got a hammer or a mallet and just tried to smash it into something that was, uh, you, you wouldn't know what it was. And then he took it to a pawnbroker. And as he's standing there waiting for his money, the pawnbroker gets his light and he begins to inspect the piece of gold. And inscribed in the piece of gold, even though it's been beaten and shredded to pieces, is the name Spurgeon. And he looks at this man and he said, I see Spurgeon written here. Of course, everybody knew who Charles Spurgeon was. And the man took off out the door. Isaiah 48, when Israel had rebelled for years against God, and he says in verse 8, you have never heard, you've never known. From of old, your ear has been not been open. From your birth, you have been treacherous as a nation. You've, all you've done is run away from me. There remains one hope that his name is still upon you. That God is committed most to his name and his glory, which was put on them in the covenant. God will never give up on us is solely because he is committed to his own name. God's love for humanity is not because he is just tickle pink with our lives, but because humanity bears his own image. We're image bearers. And God's love for his saved covenant people at you is because we bear the image of his son, his glory. His name and His Spirit is in you. Scripture says again and again and again, God does everything for His own glory, His own name. And we presume that His love for Himself and our good are opposed when we hear that. But God's loving design is that they are not divided, but they're one and the same. The problem is that we've reversed the roles often of man and God. We think it's right for God to be about my glory, my achievements, and how egotistical, self-centered for Him to be about His own. And that would be true if God were sinful like we are and broken. Because we all know the reason it is wrong for me to be about my own greatness is because I'm not very great, right? I'd be lying. I'd be deceiving you. That is found in Him. But you might say, if God is good, He must love what is good, right? You follow the logic there? If God is good, He must love and be about what is good. And always be about promoting what is good. And so if He is the biggest good and the greatest good, then it would be wrong for Him to not be about Himself. You say, okay, where does that leave people? Where does that leave His people? Well, I say it leaves you in the greatest place. Because experiencing His goodness and greatness and glory has an effect on us. That is what changes us and gives us glory. And so when God says, I am committed to 
not only being glorious, but displaying my greatness, His people say, yes, amen, because His glory has an effect. It's not some stagnant idea found in a box somewhere that has no effect. When we experience God's love, that's His glory, God's grace, His holiness, His justice, His wisdom, it has an effect upon you. It transforms your life. And the more and the more and the more you commune and draw close to God, the more it transforms you because you're experiencing His glory. And so when we hear God say, I do all things for my name's sake, our response as His people should be, yes! And I get to experience that. And it changes me. So God can be about God first and yet still do what's most loving for you. You see that? Can I get a, a nod? Or a nod like this? <laughs> Jonathan Edwards says it like this. The greatest American theologian says it like this. God must first be committed to the fountain so that his people can drink of the stream that comes from it. Isn't that great? God's got to be committed to the fountain so you can drink of the stream that comes from it. So here's our main idea today. God's commitment to God is our greatest assurance. That's a John Frame quote. That's not me. God's committed to God. God's commitment to God is our greatest assurance that he'll be for you too. All right, let's dive into this. Um, two points here. First is God's one end is his glory. Verse 9 to 11. If you look there in your Bibles with me. God's one end, one purpose, and everything he does is his glory. 9 to 11. Let me start. I'll just read verse 9 again. Or let me start verse 8. There's something there we want to see. Verse 8. You've never heard. You have never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth you were called a rebel. Verse 10. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you that I may not cut you off. God says in verse 8, Israel has always been treacherous to them. They've never listened. Even before he made a covenant with them, he knew that they would rebel. So why does he love them so much? Well, why will he not just throw them away and go find another people that are not as stiff-necked? Well, he tells us. There's two great words here. Two words. First, restrain. And second, defer. You see... He restrains, he defers his anger. The language means to lengthen out or to be long-suffering, to chain it. He defers the judgment towards their sin. Now, why restrain your anger? Look at your Bibles. Verse 9, that I may not cut you off. Simply put, he will not destroy his people regardless of how bad their sin is here. God's wrath is terrible. But throughout the Scripture, we see God is eager to defer His anger and give those who turn away from sin grace. He loves to give people many opportunities to turn away from and repent. His love postpones His wrath. Right? God delays His wrath for the sake of His love. This is even part of His identity. When God says in Exodus 34, verse 6,
we will not cut them off, then what's his purpose with allowing them being taken to Babylon? Verse 10, look in your Bibles with me, verse 10. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Notice those words. I've refined you in the furnace of affliction. Their affliction, their suffering, God calls a furnace to refine them, to melt them down and reveal things in their heart. But his purpose is not to destroy them, but to transform them, to bring them back to himself. And notice what he says there. You see these words? Not a silver, which probably means there is a complete melting of silver when you refine it. And God says, I'm not doing that. So they'll be heated, they'll be transformed, but they'll not be cut off and melted completely down. Now, okay, why is he committed to his people? Why not just give them up? Look at verse 9 and 11. For my namesake, verse 9, verse 11, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be proclaimed or profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Four times he declares the same thing. That God has covenanted. He's made a relationship. You might say he's wed this country. He's bound himself to them. And if they are utterly destroyed, the nations would presume that their God is powerless to save and not the one true God. And He will not give His glory to another. Now, the message of God for all of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to save us and bring us into covenant with God is For His own sake, He loves and keeps failures, fools, spiritually rebellious people who struggle like I do and like you do. God's commitment to God is your great assurance that He is committed to you. Let me say a touch more about that. He chose you to be His before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. He called you, not because you were ready to listen, or that He saw that you had something good in you that He said, yes, them, yes, her. But it's just the opposite. We were those rebels. When He describes Israel, He describes us before grace, not wanting to obey or love God. But He has placed His name and His Spirit upon you. If you're a believer. And the true believer will persevere through the hardest of seasons. Times when we feel our heart is so hard and we don't want anything to do with God. Why do we persevere? He says it. For my name's sake. God's commitment to God is your greatest assurance that He is committed to you. Because His name is upon you, and so are His promises that He must keep. God's love for Himself and our good are not divided, but they are one and the same. Because His covenant people are bound to His name. 
Now when you understand that, it will radically alter the way you seek Him and the way you pray. You will go from thinking, you know, I've done some pretty good things this week. (laughs) I went home and gave my wife a break or I fed my children well this week. I didn't get angry at them. Now I can pray. Now God I know will listen to me. I went to church. He'll listen to me. You'll go from that to how David prayed. Listen to what David says. Psalm 25, 11. For your namesake, God, pardon my sin because it's great. Not because I'm good, not because I've gone to worship, not because I'm the king. For your namesake. Listen to what he says in Psalm 79, 9. Help us, O God, for our salvation. For the glory of your name, deliver us, forgive us of our sins for your name's sake. They made their case built upon his name and his glory, not my performance. Because ultimately they knew this is why God does all things. And my friends, listen, that is the hope to come to God with prayer, isn't it? That sometimes I struggle. And you do too. And we feel like the last thing I can do right now, if I'm not believing the Gospel, is to come and to pray and to seek the Lord. But then we remember God does everything, including answer our prayer for His namesake. And so we come and we say, God, I know I've struggled. I know I've dealt with sin this week. But for Your namesake, will You do X? Let's go to the second thing. Point two. So God's commitment to God is our greatest assurance. Let's move from God's one end is His glory to point two. God's one end, His glory, produces effects in your life. Verses 17 to 19. Verse 17 to 19. Let's just look at verse 17 first. I'll just read that again. I'll start at the middle. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. My friends, listen. God wants what's profitable for you, right? He says, who teaches us what is profitable. He even says, oh, that they had paid attention to what I said. When God enters a covenant with people, which He has with all Christians, and binds Himself to you, He teaches them, He gives us commandments for our profit. The Word and everything that's written there is for your profit, for your benefit, for your best good. And here He is saying, if they had only obeyed what I told them and listened, and he tells them several effects, you wouldn't be in slavery. Here's what would happen. Two things first. Notice there, verse 18. Then your peace would be like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. And what he means is a river is just continuously flowing. And he's saying your peace, the peace that you experience would be continuous in your life. You wouldn't be in slavery. And then he says righteousness like waves crashing in. 
like waves crashing in upon them. That their righteousness would come again and again and again. It means following God's teaching, they would again and again and again be covered with righteousness. And both of these are divine gifts that are part of the profit of following and believing His Word. But there's one more. Look in your Bibles with me, verse 19. Your offspring would have been like the sand, and your descendants like its grain. Their name would have never been cut off or destroyed before me. Okay, stop. That's covenant language. He's going all the way back to Genesis chapter 15 and the promise he made to Abraham. I'm going to read that. Put these two together. Genesis 15, 5. And he brought him, Abraham, outside. And God said, look toward heaven. Number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And he believed and the Lord counted to him his righteousness. Listen. God is bringing His people back to the original covenant of grace He made with Abraham that they're in, which is an eternal relationship. And if they had obeyed His teaching, they had believed God, He's saying your children would be innumerable. They would not be taken captive and destroyed. God's desire is not just obedience but for His people to receive the beautiful and profitable consequences of obeying His teachings. All the covenant blessings to be us. And yet because they still do not listen, Israel that is, their return to the land under King Cyrus will not bring the blessings they hope for. They have never heard and never known. So that when God does send the Messiah, Jesus, they would not listen to Him. And listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you will kill the prophets. Stone those who sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. <laughs> My friends, if you're a believer then you too are part of the covenant of grace made with Abraham. And you're part of that. Jesus fulfilled that. And my question now to you, God's people, is how do you see His teaching? How do you see it? How do you view the Word? How do you view His commandments to you? There are really two roads. One of listening and following, which He says produces peace and righteousness in our life. And the other is to say, no, they are an obstacle that keeps me from getting what I really want and prevents me from being really happy. So I want to ask how or say how you listen and follow his teaching reveals how you see and love God. Suppose a single woman, let's just close with this, starts work in a large company. And as she's coming in, there's a board there. It's her first day, and she reads it. And on the board are all the rules and regulations from her boss at how she should work, how she should practice safety, the things that he expects of her. Now, she doesn't know him at all. And so she feels that these are cold and harsh. She feels fearful of him. She even feels somewhat angry that he would try to dictate 
how she does her job. They certainly don't inspire her to work. But she follows them because she doesn't want to get fired. Then one day she meets this man. They begin to develop a relationship. They fall in love and they get married. And they get married here at First Presbyterian Church. It's a great thing. You're all invited. And during that time, she notices that her perspective about the bulletin board, it changes to the same degree that she begins to get to know him. She now sees the guidelines as wise. They're loving directions from someone who actually cares for her and yet is committed to being a good boss. She no longer views them as burdensome. You say, what's changed? Well, not her boss, but her relationship and knowing the heart and the love of the lawgiver. My, I want to read to you John Flavel. He says this. His law, God's law, is a law of love written upon our hearts. He delights in free, not forced obedience. He rules children, not slaves. And so His kingly power is governed with fatherly love. Now lastly, He gives us ability to obey in grace when we fail. Last thing I want to say is, the Father doesn't just give you His Word and call you out and say, yeah, go follow that. He gives you ability to do what is most profitable for you, and that's the Holy Spirit. And the more we commune with God, the more we worship, the more we actually have the ability to live the life He calls us to live. And because... We are His. We are also sealed with grace. That on our worst day, when we struggle and we find that our hearts are hard, we feel very burdened, we struggle with trials, we struggle with failures, His grace is sufficient for us. Let's just pray. Father, thank You so much for this time and Thank you that you are God that does all things for your name's sake. And because you're good, that's good for us. Lord, some of us here today, we're tired. Some of us feel like spiritual failures. Lord, some of us feel hard and cold at a distance from you. Lord, some of us feel like maybe you've turned your face away from us because we haven't turned our face to you recently. God, yet by faith in Christ, we're marked with your Spirit. Christ is in us. And you are committed to love us eternally and keep us for your own namesake and for your own glory. Lord, and I just praise you for that. Lord, we thank you now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper for the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That by faith in that and that alone are we saved. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.